Hello everyone. My name is Rahul Sones and I'm the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast and the founder of the Disruptive Business Network. For those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, this podcast is really about tracing the journeys of people who have found true meaning and purpose in the work that they do. Each episode hopes to highlight those sources of meaning that have really influenced a person's calling. In this episode, uh, I'm really thrilled to speak with uh, Trent and Joseph who are the co-founders of Foria, which is a Melbourne-based uh, virtual reality and immersive tech company. Uh, I've had the privilege of knowing them since around 2014 when they were still in their startup phase. And it's really inspiring to see what they have built, not just in terms of a flourishing business, but also as an example of doing good in the world through technology while also building a really thriving company culture. So uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, here's Trent and Joseph. Cheers. All right. Trent and Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome to the On Meaningful Work podcast. Uh, thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, I think I've kind of been on your periphery for a few de- for a few years now. Like we've collaborated on a few things, and uh, and I think uh, Foria or what you've created is really one of the benchmarks. I feel of you know how technology can be used for for good in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so so really maybe let's just start with Foria and um, the company and what are you currently excited about? Like what what are the projects that are happening? You know we've just we're almost, you know, two years into this pandemic. You know, how's that? How's that treating you? Yeah, great. Yeah, I think without a doubt, last two years, massive transformation. Collectively, we've been thrust into a digital awakening. Um, you know, right now, the concept of the metaverse is really, yeah, burst into the mainstream psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for us, we really want to help shape what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of questions and kind of dystopic visions of what the metaverse could be and i guess you know the kind of monopolies that could you know shape it beyond maybe a little bit more of the i think ethical approach that we would like to have so yeah i think for foria we want to help um champion and and lead you know a conscious discussion in what the metaverse can be what it should be Mm -hmm. um and that's why we're really grateful for the clients and projects that we get to work on Mm because i think it is a shining beacon of you know the best potential of immersive technology and what that can provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are you excited for? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited for a few of the projects that we're working on at the moment. Um, one of them is is a really exciting piece around climate security in the Pacific and just being there, filming that even during a pandemic and showing some of our old work that was the Ecosphere project, seeing the the way that sort of immersive, impactful experiences around conservation, you know, with community stories integrated in there, you know, authentic storytelling for the people who are on the ground dealing with, you know, say men might be on the forefront of climate change or conservation. Seeing the impact that that can have on other communities and the way that that can inspire um, sort of new ways of thinking, uh, you know, that really excites me a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And we saw that firsthand when we were in, um, in Fiji last year. So. Yeah, I'm excited for more 
to, to provide a platform through technology for more uh, meaningful storytelling, mm -hmm. community-led storytelling. Sure. Um, yeah, and you're right in that, you know, virtual reality and especially like terms like the metaverse is currently, you know, pretty much like the focus of the zeitgeist right mm -hmm. now, you know, everyone's talking about it. But um, maybe let, let's go back to, to your personal individual stories. Um, so maybe starting with you, Trent, uh, where, where did you grow up? Yeah, I'm a Canberra boy. Uh, nice. I was kind of yeah. born in the US, just popped out when my parents were living their training. But yeah, grew up in Canberra. Um, pretty wonderful, you know, open, sprawling environment as kids go and discover the wild and mm -hmm. yeah, foster, I think, a bit of a deeper connection just for having space and roaming around. And, you know, I guess it's a more like a country town with a bit of a city vibe attached. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I grew up in Canberra and after a while got a little bit of a niche to explore the world and slowly gravitated mm -hmm. to this wonderful city, Melbourne, and this cool. is definitely my home now. And what, did you do your schooling in, in Canberra? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so studied um, at ANU, mm -hmm. early days, uh, explored, I guess, the, the pathway of commerce and economics mm -hmm. and quickly realised that that was not the direction I wanted to go down and started to connect with uh, more interpersonal you know, human psychology and mm -hmm. shifted my degree there and then um, finished it actually here in Melbourne at Melbourne mm -hmm. University. Awesome. So maybe just a little before that, like in your schooling days, you know, how were you at school? Were you, were you a good student? Were you, were you a boy? <laughs> Is this on the record? Or? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, definitely social and playful, um, full of uh, energy, I'd say. Definitely mm -hmm. maybe lacking attention at the best of times. Mm -hmm. um, but no, nah, like definitely loved where I, I grew up. You know, I could ride my bike to school every day and mm -hmm. we had a wonderful little environment. But yeah, I felt very much in, in touch with, with the natural world. So mm -hmm. yeah, it is a wonderful place to grow up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was a fun, fun childhood, very lucky. Mm. fortunate in my upbringing and and as a kid were you were you a bit of a nerd were you a bit of a tech guy or? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember getting called a, a geek uh, the occasional times growing up but um not particularly nerdy i think yeah love sports um i've always had a curiosity for technology growing mm -hmm. up definitely um never forget you know like on on the pulse of remember the early days of like and if you remember from the Walkman to mini discs and mm -hmm. the first MP3 player and you know probably holding six songs before you know the iPod was yeah. in the scene. <laughs> and yeah, always always really appreciated um, these new little tools and what they mean. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's been a fun fun journey, kind of riding that into adulthood now. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and say maybe looking back at your childhood, do you feel like there were any formative experiences that you look back on that maybe something blew your mind or, you know, that, um, that really think, okay, that's something that kind of formed, formed me or mm. formed my direction. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I guess a, a mixture of things like, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate today to be a co-founder of a company, uh, with four other childhood friends, you know, mm. we've, we've grown up together and, and that's mm. really one of the greatest foundations of Fourier ultimately. Um, so to take that kind of childhood connection into, you know, 
your career and your profession and your vocation is yeah very grateful for that mm-hmm. and yeah i think the beauty of canberra is it's a really open yeah natural world mm-hmm. and so i'd spent all of my time just you know in my backyard that backed onto a you know big open um community park and yeah lots of time in nature and i think whilst we work in this um fantastical space of tech it's very much that same appreciation and connection to the natural mm-hmm. world that mm-hmm. is a core part of my being i believe so yeah i think it's been a nice little element that i still you know seek um living in the big city smoke here in melbourne mm-hmm. mm. and when it came to uni like what what kind of formed your decision to initially you know start with commerce economics yeah right. great yeah i, I think uh, i've always enjoyed you know the aspects in some sense of entrepreneurship um mm. <laughs> i guess canberra was the last bastion in in australia where you could buy fireworks and so i remember <laughs> when they slowly started um yeah stopping the sale of, of fireworks i put all of my childhood savings into fireworks and started being the distributor of black like market social market. circles of some some cracker nights and lots of fun there um and so i think that commerce aspect of like new ideas um you know you didn't see this this the time um it wasn't really ever a pursuit of money or anything like that it was more i think bringing people together around a concept of doing something differently. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was more in yeah, a little bit of marketing that kind of opened up um yeah, space of just how we can connect with people. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, my my mother is a psychologist and yeah, I didn't quite think at the time that that was really a pathway for me. Um mm-hmm. but then yeah, there's deeper you dive the more I think you know intrinsic you know um psychology is for all of us and mm-hmm. how we can connect and communicate and understand and support one another and mm-hmm. so that's been a really big foundational part you know starting a business but really growing a community mm-hmm. um getting people together around the fire and mm-hmm. being there and trying to you know empower one another so mm-hmm. yeah really grateful for that mm-hmm. awesome joseph mm-hmm. um how about you where, where, where did you grow up Yeah, I was I also grew up in Canberra. Um I was in a little village called Hall Village, which is sort of on the far northern tip. Um you can basically like see the New South Wales border from there and mm. it was it, it's like a rural village. It's maybe a 4x4 street grid. Um at the time that I grew up there, pretty much knew everyone who mm. lived in the village and uh, my parents were sort of busily starting a veterinary practice, so I had a lot of time to run around and spend Yeah, spent my weekends and days after school just in sort of what felt like infinite nature reserves mm-hmm. and yeah, oh, spent a lot of time outside. So So they kind of left you to to explore. They definitely yeah, <laughs> left me to my own devices, yeah. Yeah. Good. So the opposite of helicopter parenting. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. I've I've had a lot of time to reflect on I mean, when they were present as parents, we uh went and had some adventures that are also questionable on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Getting lost hiking in the Butterwangs and me throwing tantrums when we're like four days into a hike and we're not quite sure where we're going. So Wow. Yeah, we're very very adventurous parents and very mm. keen to get lost and find a way um sort of in, mm. in the midst of it. So I think that's prepared me well for running a startup and, <laughs> and working in in production because there's sort of spaces that you really need to be comfortable when you're uncomfortable in I guess. Yeah, and also it was dealing with uncertainty and you mm, know, exactly. Yeah. Um and um so did you do your schooling in in Canberra as well? I did. Yeah. So Trent and I both went to Radford. I think we probably had fairly different experiences of it though. I was not 
so I mean, maybe more similar than we think. Um, but I was just not very well suited to tertiary education, mm. and that was a school that was very focused on, you know, what your university entry score would be and all that kind of thing. And I mean, I remember some specific things like in graphic design, which I was, I thought I was pretty good at. Um, my my graphic design teacher told me that I'd never work in that industry, and mm. Mm. I was doing my own assignment and two or three other people's assignments in that class and they mm. would all get 90 plus out of mm -hmm. 100 and i would get like 65. Mm. i remember bringing it up with him once i left his class and he's just like uh <laughs> it's not really good explanations that but yeah i had a i mean i ended up going on to do a graphic design apprenticeship but mm -hmm. as soon as the school found out that i wasn't really pursuing a tertiary like i didn't want to get an entry score and go to uni I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and mm -hmm. I wanted to travel and do other things and gain some industry experience so um, they you know were supportive of that but were basically like oh if you're not going to try don't be here mm -hmm. so I felt a little bit ostracized from like a pretty you know straight edge tertiary focused um, academic environment Mm -hmm. uh, being someone who was like more sporadic and more creative and less structured so mm -hmm. yeah it was an interesting experience um but yeah. I, I went on to do a design apprenticeship for a while and then moved to canada to pursue photography and mm -hmm. yeah oh, so i um had a had a whirlwind uh transition out of canberra and out of that schooly environment but it was yeah definitely yeah learned a lot so, so during that 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 schooling period maybe you know when when you felt that this is not for me and and they they also re return that sentiment and <laughs> yeah you're not for us <laughs> <laughs> you're not for us not not, not a match made anywhere yeah no. but um in in your spare time you know like when you were by yourself when you were wandering you know um what were you spending time on like were you creating something were you did you have hobbies were you yeah it's a good I, question mm. um music's always been a huge thing for me um, yeah like musical musical like playing music, listening to music, mixing music together. It's always mm -hmm. been a real passion of mine. My dad has, yeah, he's an exceptionally talented musician actually in a number of um, different genres and on instruments that I can't pronounce and had never heard of before him. He's mm -hmm. got a, an abundance of um, instruments from around the world and plays in, you know, he sings in a Bulgarian women's choir. Um, and wow. yeah. and <laughs> now with my mom, which is super mm. cute, um, <laughs> and just plays a lot of instruments very well. And I, I'm abundantly grateful to have grown up around lots mm. of music, you know, like you'd have a few friends over and they'd, <laughs> I remember being like, they'd jam till like 11 p.m. They'd be like, be quiet, I gotta go to school. Like, <laughs> yeah. Playing this incredible world music and mm. I didn't have, I probably didn't have the appreciation for it at the time that I now do, but um, yeah, music was a huge focus. Just being outside, like I would, I, reflecting on my childhood, I never wanted to be inside. Mm. Um, sport was a big thing as well. Like there was a certain camaraderie in sport, team sports um, as a child. So yeah, they were huge focuses of mine, I guess. Music, mm. creative outlets around music and um, photography and sport. Yeah. And um so, so maybe uh, some similar to question to to Trent, like looking back at that experience from your early childhood to schooling, uh, you know, I suppose you wanted to answer it in a way that you were really drawn to the outdoors and you spent this amazing time with your parents getting lost in the woods and, mm. and on hikes and so on. But were there other experiences that you look back on and think, you know, holy shit, you know, that, that blew my mind at the time. I didn't realize that this play out 
um, now when I think on it. Yeah, yeah but I yeah. mean, both positive and negative, I guess. Like, yeah, yeah. there were some traumas of my childhood, which I found quite defining for like until my early 20s and they sort mm. of wrote my story a lot and I felt sort of captive to them and it's been amazing in my 20s and now into my early 30s like rewriting that and allowing those stories to be part of what makes me me and be proud of that and not let mm. them define me. So there's definitely some more challenging aspects of those times which have shaped me. Mm. Um, but this probably isn't the right place to go into them. The, the mm. positive aspects are, you know, travel mm. was abundant as a child you know like my parents wouldn't want to just get a house down the coast for the school holidays they would want to take me and my brother and we'd go to Nepal for six weeks and mm. go do a hike where at our most remote we'd be you know 11 12 13 days away from the nearest road mm. um and I remember things like you know my mum is an incredible vet um talented surgeon and I remember her, you know, stitching up, like prepping a wound, stitching it up for this woman who mm. had an infected, quite a deep infected cut 10 days away from the nearest road, which would be days drive away from the nearest hospital. Wow. Okay. There was a helicopter stuck up there that had been there for about 18 months because no one mm. could afford to get the fuel up to get it out and the air is so thin that like mm. helicopters aren't super efficient up there. And yeah, this, this old woman was just... So lovely. She was just working in a field, getting on with her business with this mm. cut that would put anyone I know in hospital, myself mm. included. And yeah, it was just this opportunity where it's like in those environments, you give what you can. Mm. And and one thing that stuck with me abundantly is like we gave what we could. Um, and obviously being from the West and having, you know, the degree of privilege that we have, you know, mm. we had we had certain things to give, but what Nepalese people were able to, you know, the people with the least give the most in a mm -hmm. way. You know? And I remember me and my brother, you know, stacking, we were building card castles in all the little huts that we would stay in. Um, and we'd stay with people in their homes as well. And that was such a beautiful experience. And we would build card castles and then we left the playing cards for the children of this house so mm -hmm. that they could continue to build card castles. And they, they but we didn't know how to communicate that. And, they thought that we'd left them behind. And so mm. they had people like racing ahead of us trying to buy cards in the next town to to like amend this. Oh, they've lost their cards. We'll try and fix it. And, wow. You know, a pack of playing cards in that area of the world would have cost you know almost a week's worth of food at the time. So Jeez, just yeah. this abundant hospitality um, mm. and just such such joy in, in simple life. And I've never forgotten that. I think mm. it's shaped my life tremendously mm -hmm. just from a young age you know being I think 15 or 16 and mm -hmm. going to Nepal a couple of times and a few other places that are that are quite remote and meeting the people that live there really has defined mm -hmm. my appreciation for um, what it is to be human I think on a really mm -hmm. basic level wow that, that's an incredible story man mm -hmm. yeah so so question for both of you you know growing up who are your heroes you know it could be people you knew mm -hmm. or people that you celebrities or people who admired from afar, you mm. know. Mm. I just had a monologue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jess is my hero, actually. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Besides each other, I should uh, qualify. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. Like, even just listening to Jess speak there, um, the worldview that he's connected with through this whole new lens, like, 
thinking about how privileged we are as societies of Australians to then, you know, be transported somewhere completely different and to see that even the generosity or the ability for your mum to, like, help someone. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, growing up, I, I actually really did look up to my both my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mother was always a really loving, kind person and incredibly present. Um, and then my father, you know, he's a really successful athlete in his prime mm-hmm. and then, yeah, an accomplished businessman mm-hmm. as well. He's a successful marathoner. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Rob Dick Stella, mm-hmm. world record holder back in his uh, prime. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yeah, but I think he's he's definitely always in the same vein, had an entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the endeavours that he's, you know, pursued have, have definitely, uh, I think, yeah, really intended to have a positive impact and think about doing things outside of the status quo. Um, so a lot of early things with food and diet and nutrition and he's doing some amazing work with Indigenous communities across this Australia for the Indigenous Marathon Foundation at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, yeah, good good to look up to. Um, I'll never forget, you know, as a kid, obviously, I imagine all kids would want to have spent more time with their parents and, you know, especially parents that are running their own businesses, right? Like there's always, um, I imagine, enough, you know, on your plate raising a family and then throwing a business into the mix definitely mm-hmm. makes things more challenging. Um, but I'll never forget my dad saying, you know, you, you kind of embody and can see uh, what a good worth work ethic is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely one of the elements that, you know, uh, as a child probably didn't understand. But I think that kind of determination, you know, to see things through to the end um, it's definitely been yeah, instilled in me from my old man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, you, Jess? Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I, I definitely don't have an answer like that. Um, who were my heroes as a kid? I mean, I looked up to a lot of, I think there was definitely like vanity present in my childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I think I had some close friends that had a bit of, had quite a bit of wealth and I thought that was sort of what I wanted and I was pretty mm-hmm. sucked into like I sport was an amazing community for me at the time and so I was I guess holding this paradox of like traveling to these really remote places and just like holding that human spirit um, in such high regard you know the spirit of generosity and compassion and community mm-hmm. but then also looking at footballers driving Range Rovers and being like oh I could get around that mm-hmm. um, so for a lot of my life I guess it was just like the people that I was idolizing were the people that they were always people at the peak of their profession. You know, mm-hmm. I never wanted mm-hmm. to, I would never aim for anything less than the absolute best at whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, it's more conceptual answer, but yeah, it was like yeah. just wherever my attention would go, be it like music at the time, it would mm-hmm. be you know, the best producers, the best DJs, the best mm-hmm. um, musicians or you know, the best footballers. Mm. or best photographers and there, there's been many you know in there's been many photographers that have really like shaped my creative process and you know Vincent LaFarad and um, like Ron Frick the director of Samsara there's been like mm-hmm. heroes throughout my life that I've you know looked up to and some of them you know I still do in terms of just being really groundbreaking at their craft mm-hmm. um and that's that's always been, I think, what's drew what's sort of drawn me to to hero figures is the people mm-hmm. that will find the the edge of what's possible in that field. Mm-hmm. Did 
Was the influence in graphic design and then eventually photography and videography, did that come from someone or was that more internal thing? Um, I mean, it was just, it was it was partly because it was something that I was really good at and partly because someone told me I could never do it. So, <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people yeah. share that. So stories. talent and spite. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Healthy balance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I was good at it and I loved doing it. Just anything that was visually creative and like, tactile to a degree I was really into um, mm. and then I worked for a company in Canberra they took me on for my apprenticeship um, and the photographer that worked there was just incredible you know mm. he he had a real way with with un, he had an understanding of light um, constructing scenes and he really drew me to photography and at the time I think just after that after I got back from Canada I started working at a at a camera store actually and you know, we service like all the professional photographers in Canberra. It was like the professional camera store, you know, where everyone mm. else was sort of selling like point and shoot cameras, which focused on like high end, um, high end equipment. And so I met a lot of uh, the professional photographers around Canberra who came in and also because we got asked more difficult, more interesting, deeper questions around photography, I just ended up spending every minute that the shop was quiet on computers, mm -hmm. researching everything I could find. And I was just, it was the first time I think that my creative passion and my intellect had the same focus. And mm -hmm. I was just able to pour myself into trying to understand as much about photography as possible. And so I, I understood a lot about it. And that served me really well moving into this more, you know, into the VR space, I guess, mm -hmm. and the video space. And, it is such a technology-heavy form of storytelling. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, mm -hmm. the technology and the technical understanding serves creatives well in this VR space. So, can't remember how we got there, but that's, uh, yeah. that's a little slip. <laughs> we got there. But when did your stories inter intersect? Like, when did you first mm. become aware wary of each we other? Had a great chat at Hannah Bright Watson. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had a few because yeah. Trent um, and the other co-founders were the year above me at in high school and college so we weren't like as directly you know interconnected at that point I guess but being at the same school and starting to go to some of the same parties and whatnot we just you know everyone would be having very like surface level conversations sort of talking shit and Trent mm -hmm. and I would would get straight to the deep stuff I think mm -hmm. and we would just start having really interesting meaningful conversations about you know what we want to do in the world and how we want to relate to our work and you know we were having conversations like this at a mm. party after a few beers in <laughs> when, when we were in our late teens i guess mm. so yeah i'll never forget that conversation as well like it was definitely one of those moments where you feel like the universal lines in in a way of like thinking and and yeah exploring different concepts beyond the status quo and maybe the superficial small talk that you have at a party and yeah, at the time it was Joseph's curiosity for people's stories beyond maybe the surface level, you know, how do you get mm. to the core of someone and speak through, you know, your work as a photographer. And then at the time, a little, um, yeah, I think maybe I hadn't really recognised looking to the dots around psychology, but it was much more like someone's kind of story ultimately mm -hmm. and how do you use media and different types of formats to like bring their story to life and mm -hmm. push beyond that kind of surface level narrative and find out, you know, uncover something deeper. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was like maybe one of the seeds that mm. 
was was sown in the early days and then yeah yeah many years later it was like we both found ourselves in melbourne and yeah questioning i think you know our early kind of career directions and decisions <laughs> you know yeah. oh let's jump into that what were those early career decisions well i mean yeah after high school i moved to canada did my mm. ski instructor certificate and was just doing some wow, photography okay. and yeah. i was sort of bouncing around the world just doing ski seasons and sort of guiding and doing some instructing and mixing my photography in there and i shot you know a handful of red bull campaigns and some big air events and different things and um shooting magazine covers for a few places in canberra and then um moved to japan i'd always wanted to live in melbourne mm -hmm. and i got this photography job in melbourne that it was basically just that it was in melbourne i don't think i even really read what the job description was <laughs> i was just like cool in melbourne i'll do it if the timing was right so i applied and got that job and basically flew from japan to canberra packed like threw all my stuff in my car and drove to melbourne mm -hmm. booked a, <laughs> the place that i rented i just like I never met them. I just like sent them the first month's rent and bond and had a, our internet was like 64 bit dial up. So <laughs> I was just getting these like four pixel frames of, I didn't know what yeah. they looked like or what the apartment looked like, but I ended up there for three years. It worked out really well. But I remember um, that photography job that I moved to Melbourne for mm -hmm. just was like ball breaking. I, mm -hmm. I think I was getting paid less a year than the value of the equipment that I had to bring to the job just to do it properly. Wow. So your, your own to, equipment? Yeah. yeah. I think I was like, cause at that point I was like doing a lot of sports photography. I you know had mm -hmm. Canon pro bodies. It was like 35 grand worth of equipment and I was probably getting paid like 40 K I think mm -hmm. when I started and it was, you know, working 70 hour weeks, traveling around the country. It was, yeah, it was a situation that was less than ideal, but it did get me to Melbourne. And, mm -hmm. you know, about a year in, Trent and I actually started, like, catching up. And maybe 10 months in, we started catching up. And, you know, we were having a beer at a pub in Richmond across from where I was living. And um, the the conversation sort of shifted from how is life now to what do we want it to look like. And mm -hmm. so Trent actually started helping me write my business plan to go back out on my own to... Mm -hmm. Cause I was going to go back to freelancing mm -hmm. and then, um, yeah, the yeah. conversation around mm -hmm. what was at the time scanned arose. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Trent, what was your first job out of uni? Yeah, I guess my very first job out of uni, I just moved to Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started as a chef at a local dive bar called oh, Beaufort. Really? Oh, um, wow. I've always loved cooking, still love cooking. And yeah. I'll never forget in primary school when they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, a chef. And all the kids <laughs> laughed at me. And they're like, boys don't cook. <laughs> and I was like, damn it. But no, it was, and then my parents really tried to foster that. And then when I realized I was just getting me to cook dinner for them, <laughs> I was like, maybe I should eat back. That's a damn good parenting strategy. <laughs> yeah. I want to be a cooker. I want to clean. <laughs> um yeah so that that was really just a, a local fun fun job that was you know something to, for me to keep my kind of idle hands busy at the time um, what is it about cooking that you love it's meditative yeah. it's really one of the most enjoyable things we do as a species right mm -hmm. like getting around together and sharing 
a meal and yeah like it's sensorial right mm -hmm. like something delicious is definitely transports you somewhere mm -hmm. um and then to cook is to provide you know it's almost mm -hmm. to be in the service of those that you're nourishing you know mm -hmm. um and so yeah i've always enjoyed that and definitely it's kind of feeding into future curious pursuits and how immersive you know, degustations could come into this mm -hmm. space but yeah so that was really just a, a casual job whilst i was really getting my head screwed on and figuring mm -hmm. out what was next yeah yeah mm. and then what, what came after that really? yeah i guess right after that um actually i did a program and it was called the Fitzroy academy of getting shit done with mr um, will dable mr will dable yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and luke as well and and that was mm. i just knew that I wanted to do something, I didn't mm -hmm. exactly know what. Um, and at that point in time, yeah, I was just really um, blown away, blown away by uh, 3D printing and the concept mm -hmm. of additive manufacturing, right? Rather mm -hmm. than subtractive, you know, CNC-based techniques, the thought of empowering anyone to create something with a 3D printer was an amazing concept. Um, and so as I dived deeper into that, started to unravel the fact that um, there's still a lot of hurdles, obviously creating 3D contents, really challenging. And mm -hmm. so I started like a consultancy pretty pretty casually, which was called 3D Melbourne in the sense mm -hmm. of just other businesses that could see the same opportunities in this space, but didn't know where to start. And so we just connect and you know provide guidance. And that really kind of unearthed um, through the Fitzroy Academy of getting shit done, GSD, mm -hmm. um, the reality that um, 3D scanning was actually, you know, much further along Gartner's, Gartner's hype cycle. So you could see mm -hmm. this new tool that was emerging that could empower anyone to create 3D content. And so mm -hmm. I was like, well, rather maybe than the output, it's the creation of the input and mm -hmm. now we can tap into that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the best part of GSD was it just kind of nudged me to, get outside of my comfort zone and mm -hmm. go speak to people, go speak to businesses and put yourself out on a limb. And mm -hmm. yeah, that slowly just connected a few dots, I think, that kind of laid the foundations to go, I think we're onto something here. Mm -hmm. um, reaching out to amazing humans, you know, such as Joe and some of the other co-founders, because mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely a, an uphill battle to start a business. And if For sure. your yeah. closest, um, you know, friends and allies are willing to, roll the dice then you know you're probably onto something special because mm -hmm. you mustn't be absolutely mad yeah. <laughs> or just slightly mad not yeah. absolutely mad right yeah. about find other people as mad as you that's yeah <laughs> um so so then there was that that meeting between you two sort of in melbourne kind mm -hmm. of after you've kind of went through your initial journey and then uh trent helped you saying trent helped you write your first business plan yeah well, yeah, for the time, yeah. For the time, yeah. And then um, what happened after that? Like, what are the, yeah. Well, the business plan was all around, it was a flow on from the conversations that we'd had earlier in our mm -hmm. relationship around human-centered storytelling and that mm -hmm. sort of, how do you create a, you know, an environment um, through photography and video work that allows people to feel, you know, really safe and really vulnerable and share deeper levels of themselves and get involved in, I guess, maybe even create a sort of a platform for their own healing. And that was all in its very early stages, but that was what I was going to set out to do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Trent was helping me with my business plan. I was acquiring some new equipment and strategizing around that. And 
this was simultaneously Trent was spinning up uh, Scanned and you know, had some co-founders already lined up and needed some help with a pitch video for MAP. Mm-hmm. And so... MAP being the Melbourne Accelerator. The Melbourne Accelerator Program, yeah, yeah, through Melbourne University. And this was when it was... It felt like something like in a tower of Hogwarts or something. Like it was in the <laughs> old Metallurgy building. And oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah I remember like six or seven of us crammed around so the table smaller than this. Like, <laughs> um, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, such a classic. Um, but yeah, I, I just was really keen to obviously reciprocate the um, you know, the energy that Trent and Ben so generous with to help me set up you know, these visions for what my future might look like. And I really wanted to help Trent with what his future might look like. And that ended up being this opportunity to, to start the company that at that point was called Scammed. Mm-hmm. And Trent offered for me to be based out of that um, office while I was sort of getting on my feet for mm-hmm. the video work, and you know, in exchange, I sort of helped with the pitch video, mm-hmm. and it just yeah, it ended up being that pretty much instantly all of the you know there was just so much to do, mm-hmm. um, there was so much to do with with scanned, and there was obviously like a real need for for storytelling, and I mean for quite a while there, I definitely I still balanced like doing other creative work outside of that but yeah I kind of ended up just part of the mix so yeah sure so, so what was the pitch for scanned what? yeah I guess at that point when we kind of recognized 3d scanning was yeah mm-hmm. in, a, in a really unique place um, at the same time I was looking for a house online mm-hmm. and you know you, it doesn't take long to to realize that Traditional real estate property marketing is trying to get you in the door, not necessarily show you the most authentic representation of a home. Mm-hmm. Um, so quite a sour taste in most you know, uh, people's mouths and they're looking for a new place to waste their time running around town to all these homes that are actually like little shoe boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, really simply the concept was well, we live in a 3D world. How can we bring you know, a physical space like a house um, to life? Mm-hmm. in a way that you could walk through it as if you're physically there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was a hard concept to get across to most people. Um, and I'll never forget uh, the first comp pitch video that we made was was so cinematic. Mm-hmm. We absolutely tanked up the first pitch, actually. Like we got halfway through and ran out of time. And I think the fact that we had this epic video that we're like, nah, these, these guys know what's up. Um, <laughs> so definitely Joe's helped, you know, get this concept Mm. yeah and bring it to life and yeah without a doubt that was really the first step in this wild wild journey that we've been on almost come up to eight years now mm. um and yeah scam was just the first little thread mm-hmm. it's amazing to see joseph's journey alongside that you know from photography to videography and like you were saying you know his intellect and understanding how to harness these storytelling tools has just been so natural for vr to see it just mm-hmm. progress from one medium to the next. Mm. Mm. And so Scan was really, I suppose, in a way, scratching your own itch and that you saw this problem when it came to looking for houses and that, um, yeah, in, in 2D, the representations weren't uh, honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess like it, it was without a doubt, there's a few really clear signs that we were, we are, we were onto something special. Yeah. Um, the very first house we scanned um, sold to an international buyer in the same week and their neighbour saw the technology that we were using and were like, maybe I should think mm-hmm. of selling my house and then listed mm-hmm. 
with that HN and we're like, well, we live in a globalized world and now you can kind of have, any, have anyone anywhere in the world walk through a house at any mm. point in time. It just made a lot of sense. And then we started scratching the surface of what we could actually do with that three-dimensional information. Mm-hmm. And so these tours, 3D tours, are actually more web-based. So you could just jump online on realestate.com.au or domain and walk through. But you could also have this you know, really accurate 3D model And so that was really the first step where we were like, could we port this into virtual reality? Mm -hmm. And so we we built an early prototype. um, And then it doesn't really take much. As soon as you put on the headset, you know, Mm -hmm. you start to feel a true sense of presence in the space and Mm -hmm. connect with things such as, you know, the dimensions and that really, I think, um, proprioception that we kind of tap into on a subconscious level could actually extend into, you know, mediums like VR. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a thread. Um, I will preface that the, the very first VR demo we had was on the Oculus DK1 and it was early mm-hmm. days of the technology. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget like getting the first VR demo we had and taking into a meeting and then taking 20 minutes to set it up because all the <laughs> hardware is so complicated and yeah. dropping yeah. them in. And they were like, that was really amazing. But now I want to spew because <laughs> it was just not actually performant and there was a lot of lag. Um, yeah. So it was a little bit too early, but I think, yeah, we could see the glimmers of what, you know, it could promise us in a way. Mm. And so that's been a nice little thing to hang on to and unearth on this yeah, journey from that. Uh-huh. And so when you set up Scan, did you... I suppose for yourselves, define a core purpose as to why we're doing this. Besides, I suppose the the, the you know obvious ap- applications such as real estate. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we've almost similar. Like, so we work in this landscape we call it XR for extended reality, which mm-hmm. which encompasses virtual reality, AR, augmented reality, and mixed reality, mm-hmm. and, um, smart glasses, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is forever evolving, right? Like in the early days, we didn't really necessarily know what we, we could do with it. And I guess as an example, you know, Joseph's passion was more in kind of, you know, human connection and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were kind of helping market properties. You know, it wasn't necessarily, I think, where our hearts sat, but it was, you know, the lowest hanging fruit that made the most sense where we could provide the most value for the product that we had at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And so where it's emerged is really fundamentally how we can connect people with place. Mm-hmm. And so that sense of like spatial awareness is, has been something really core. Um, and that's why, you know, we this whole XR landscape is, is embodied in this notion of spatial computing. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, three-dimensional information. Mm-hmm. And we're breaking free from this little letterbox, you know, screen that we have on our phone or on our computer and we're stepping inside it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was really the concept of being able to kind of step inside content and media and walk around and, and yeah, really be alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing to add to that, I guess, is that pretty, pretty early on, we had an opportunity where we were doing, like through the real estate work, mm-hmm. we were working with The Block, which is a, I don't know, people may or may not know about it, sort of a reality renovation oh, TV show. TV yeah. show. Yeah. 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 And we basically had a, a spot, a TV spot in the season finale where we put all the contestants uh, in virtual reality, like mm-hmm. um, 3D models of their property and they had to navigate through and find like a, a key which would unlock the next part of the challenge in the, mm-hmm. in the finale. And I think it was the first time that VR had been used on primetime TV in Australia, which was mm-hmm. sort of a, a landmark moment. But what the meaningful outcome from that 
engagement, at least on a values level, was that there was a young girl in isolation um, at the Alpha, I believe, with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and mm-hmm. she wasn't able to get, she was a huge fan of the TV show and had been watching it diligently, but wasn't able to make it to the open day where the public can sort of come and go through the apartments mm-hmm. and meet, meet the crew and the, uh, the couples and contestants and whatnot. Um, her dad watched that TV spot and contacted the producer of the show and um, who, who put him in touch with us and we were actually able to get a VR headset to her in hospital and it was taken to her by her favourite couple from the show. And, you know, all the reports of her, you know, experiencing that VR content, this is like real estate property VR content. This isn't mm-hmm. like healthcare focused mm-hmm. wellbeing content. Um, but there were nurses coming from all over the hospital to be like, what happened? Like, she's mm. happy, she's smiling, she's got energy. She's mm. Her mental and physiological reaction to that, I think, exceeded everyone's expectations. Mm. And that was a huge catalyst for us to think about, you know, how does this, how do, how do we use our skill set in this space? And how does this technology extend, mm-hmm. you know, beyond the realms of a commercial outcome into something really meaningful and really impactful? And, um, I think that's actually been a beacon for all of us as mm-hmm. founders and for the company from that point is, yeah, we, you know, we still operate in property and I think we still make meaningful products in that mm-hmm. space, but there has always been like a guiding light of, all right, well, what can this really do in a healthcare setting or, you know, um, from more of a storytelling perspective and that, you know, guided Trent and I to apply for Bites for Health, which is a grant through the Murdoch Children's Research mm-hmm. Institute with the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. and. Um, we were successful in in a grant there. I mean, it was it was such a nominal amount that I think we ended up funding like two thirds of it ourselves mm-hmm. through the commercial work that we were doing. So it was this is sort of the bud of that relationship mm-hmm. between having a commercial product that generates income so that we could fund meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Jim, maybe this is a bit of a boring question, but but just getting your business started, how did you start? forming those relationships like how did you get on the block and you know how did people like real estate it's a good question real yeah. estate come to know yep. what, what you guys do or realestate.com come to know what you guys do yeah without a doubt like um, persistent effort right <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget like early days even um, one of the perks of getting into map was we got taken across to Silicon Valley and okay, whilst yeah. we're in the region it was like all right where would the best use of this technology be applied? And mm. like Airbnb. And so going in cold, reaching out to Airbnb, probably sent them a dozen emails, you know, and as we're getting closer to flying there, I was like, hey, cool, I'm going to be here next week. It'd be great to catch up, you know, it'd be great to hear from you. And I'll never forget getting the first reply. They're like, Trent, we don't know who you are, but we do know you're persistent. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing at that point in time, like they could mm. see the utility of it, but they also needed a solution they could scale globally, right? Mm. And I think that technology is arrived today in terms of what's possible Mm -hmm. and then in the real estate space really i think every co-founder um that we have has brought a you know unique flavor to the team dynamic um you know i don't think any single one of us is a a steve jobs persona but i feel like collectively you know we are greater uh, than some parts in that Mm -hmm. respect and Mm so steven um our coo his family had a a property um, real estate business out um and we were like, let's line up some trials. Let's do mm-hmm. 10 scans. We'll cover that. Mm-hmm. And let's just see what the market tells us, okay. right? And yep. so as you do in the early days, anything to kind of get your foot in the door. And then we started just getting some amazing data 
um, and then taking that, you know, those successful stories to bigger players, to bigger businesses, um, working with the portals especially because it was also, I think, the right place where there was some emerging um, standards and how three-dimensional content could actually be experienced on the web, so mm -hmm. known as WebGL. And portals really didn't know where to start, property portals. Mm -hmm. um, and so we could actually give them the guidance and code. So we kind of came in as the, you know, expert, domain expert in this space and then started to actually really secure our, a kind of um, brand synonymously with the aspect of 3D tours. Mm -hmm. And we were the first mover, um, which was great. And then as the market really started to unfurl and open up, um, we shifted and we were like, we need to actually enable other businesses to do what we've done. Mm -hmm. And we were actually already internally building tools to help us scale and automate a lot of the processes. And so like maybe the real opportunity for us is in the software space mm -hmm. and providing that to other small businesses and help them leapfrog what mm -hmm. they can do in terms of capacity building. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, over time, it's just a little bit of an organic uh, pursuit through persistence. Um, mm -hmm. It's helped, you know, open doors and, one leads to the next. And yeah, we've had some really great projects. Like even Joe Swing was talking about the block. Mm -hmm. That was a massive watershed moment for VR because mm -hmm. it's still this kind of science fiction concept. And then yeah. all of a sudden, people on a really mainstream TV show are using this to walk through an apartment, you know, mm -hmm. sight unseen. Like there's some really cool aspects there that I think um, hopefully paved the way to help accelerate the adoption of, of this type of content here in Australia. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Um, just before we move on, I suppose this is a question around uh, persistence and I suppose, you know, dealing with knockbacks and dealing with, with failure. Um, how, do you, how do you process that? Hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I guess it's, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but I think that, you know, we live in a, culture that sort of ha holds that in such reverence you know it's like mm. this persistence like it's something about you know it's an Australian spirit thing it's a like it's a pick yourself up dust yourself off sort of thing and mm -hmm. I guess that's you know it's part of our culture to persist I think um, mm. it's a very like masculine archetype mm. thing and I'm actually like moving forward very interested in exploring the alternative but mm. it's I mean especially like the mentorship that we got I remember being told by like an ex Google employee that was a mentor through the accelerator program, like if you're not sleeping under your desk, you're not trying hard enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we reflect now on how, you know, unhealthy some of those behaviors are. But at the mm -hmm. time, like, especially when we were in that moment of like starting the business, um, it was very much the hype of like the, the startup grind and, you know, mm -hmm. do whatever it takes to get it done. And, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we probably owe the success of the company to that, but I definitely um, like to imagine a future where we can exist more in the the softer sort of feminine archetype way of doing things where we can set intentions and allow them to mm -hmm. evolve more naturally rather than getting to an end through brute force and mm -hmm. energy. But, yeah. Yeah. Maybe just to, to add on that, um, I guess in the early days, really the solution that we were trying to bring to life was you know an immense change in a really traditional sector being mm -hmm. property right mm -hmm. like real estate marketing floor plans and photographies you know 
been around probably since the beginning and yeah there's definitely a kind of rigid resistance to change that we mm -hmm. were really coming up against in the early days and it was debilitating you'd line up a presentation and then you just get nothing but pushback mm -hmm. i think um you know how you pull your socks up and you know keep your, your chin high because you, you you know you back yourself and you believe in what you're really trying to do mm -hmm. um you know i guess at that point in time yeah you, you do persevere a lot but i think in more recent times, what's really helped, at least me on a personal level, is just practicing gratitude. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you know, I think forever, you know, we're always aiming to succeed and push and often, you know, rarely do we stop and take stock for the achievements that we've made. Um, but there's definitely been a few moments where, you know, for Ecosphere, we were working to see if we could get uh, David Attenborough as a voiceover mm -hmm. and then we got so close to talking to his manager and we lining it up and we had the budget set aside and then mm -hmm. you know at the very last moment you know it was declined and that mm -hmm. was like a massive blow but then I just will never forget in that moment kind of pausing and reflecting and then looking around at the project and the team everything that we've achieved you know what we're actually creating and just being immensely grateful for that and it was mm -hmm. like instantly the weight was just lifted yeah um, so I think moments like that where you you know, don't beat yourself up and you actually go, wait a second, you know, these achievements are something worth celebrating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And I, I think it really helps that maybe you're wearing this together. Um, especially, yeah. Yeah, definitely over the last seven, eight years, mm. there's been, I think that's been the thing is like we've, we've been a, a team working together, you know, and, and putting everything mm. on the line, I guess, giving it everything that we had. And we were aligned enough that we were all, all, always working towards the same goal, but, you know, taking ownership of specific tasks. And so if something would, you know, fail and you get knocked back, there was always energy there to sort of pick you up. And, mm -hmm. and we've, I think that's been a, a large part of our ability to persist and, mm -hmm. you know, stay positive and stay really grateful, which I think is a huge part of it. It's just, mm -hmm. yeah, having that support network of multiple co-founders and as the team grew, mm -hmm. you know, having more people to, to share that load and bring their own flavor and sort of energy to it as well. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe we can talk about just VR for a second. You know, um, I think as far as emergent tech goes, you know, you, you look at AI, you know, blockchain, etc. It's VR seems to have the most potential for doing good in the world. Um, what do you think is the promise of, of VR? Yeah, I guess like that's that's humbling to hear and I appreciate <laughs> you, you're back yeah. in the VR halls for yeah. an instrument of positive impact in the world. Mm. Yeah, I think like early days, uh, our vision statement for Fourier has been to pioneer evolving technology to mm. transform human experience, right? And so when we look at VR, you know, it's this nascent medium that's, you know, been around in the public psyche for decades, mm -hmm. but really now it's it's at a price point and a form factor that is actually you know incredibly capable. Mm -hmm. And so I think now that it is accessible, you know, there's 10 million um, Quest twos that are now in markets. So Oculus is latest headset. So we're starting to see an uplift where you can actually reach really a considerable portion of the population, relatively mm -hmm. speaking. Um, and so I think through this medium it really is much more closer to the human experience, right? It's much mm -hmm. more of a, a lived format. You know, you step inside 
an experience and you can walk a day in someone else's shoes. You can feel a deeper empathy, empathic connection with the subject and the story mm-hmm. when you, you know, are sitting in front of them eye to eye, heart to heart. Um, it's truly spatial in the soundscape that's around you where it's actually, you know, tricking your brain to actually thinking like it's there. I love every mm-hmm. time dropping someone into VR and people still reach out to touch something even though they know it's not there. <laughs> um, and so I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's really just, a, a, whilst it is this w- weird and fandangled technology, it actually, to me at least, feels like a more human medium. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's definitely as a tool for storytelling, a much more effective way to tell stories and connect people with the message that you're really hoping to instill mm-hmm. through, the, yeah, through the story. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to a lot of VR conferences for a few years there when, remember conferences? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Those were the days. (laughs) Conferences, the free lunch. Um, Mm -hmm. And empathy got thrown around so much in the VR industry for a while, especially at things like film festivals. Like, I think Mm -hmm. the rectilinear, like, traditional 2D film world was so sick of hearing how VR was an empathy machine that they (laughs) sort of banned the word. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, it it is that. It it offers you presence in a Mm -hmm. way that, you know, and a distraction for an environment in a way that two D film, you know, I think is is straying from. In that, I there's a huge place for two D media. You know, the accessibility you can get it to a lot of people. There's some powerful stories that can be told through two D, and I don't think that will or should go anywhere. But VR does offer you a really unique moment of presence where you can put a character in stereo across a table from someone and make eye contact mm-hmm. and you can scale these embodied experiences which have a real connection to place as well. And I think as we, as a global species and global community, reflect on you know, our origins as a species, and it's, it's amazing to see such a resurgence in you know, the integration and acknowledgement of First Nation stories in, mm-hmm. in a lot of different um, you know, genres of storytelling, mediums um, and whatnot. But... That place-based storytelling, I think, is is something that we really have to return to, and that doesn't operate as well in any other medium. I think, as it does in VR, because mm-hmm. you're truly on country, you're in the place where the story has relevance and context, and you can look the person who carries that story in the eye, and they can they can mm-hmm. you know welcome you into that place. And I think that there is a really profound power in allowing people to have these deep embodied experiences in the context of the place where the story is relevant and that's something that we're just at the tip of the iceberg with Mm -hmm. as well right like we haven't there will be more you know um, evolutions of the technology and more immersiveness and and different things but yeah i'd love to just make sure that this um that vr as a as a medium you know has these meaningful um focuses as mm-hmm. well because I think it's it's always at risk of becoming another mm-hmm. marketplace or yeah. another yeah, Actually, gaming. You know, you're, you're right in that VR as an empathy tool is, I suppose, bandied about and it's almost a cliche now. But, but sometimes, you know, cliches are true. The cliches mm-hmm. because they're true. And uh, the example I'm thinking of is there was this VR film called, I think it's called The Clouds of Sidra mm-hmm. that yeah, was based, that was filmed in a Syrian refugee camp, if I'm getting right. It's a Syrian refugee in a Jordanian, Jordanian refugee, refugee camp. Chris yeah. Mm. Yeah, but, but that seems to have like a real impact in that 
if I remember correctly, there was actually a vote mm-hmm. held at the UN after that film was showed, and then that changed the vote. Like that yeah. was the yeah, we yeah. had world leaders and policymakers coming out of that in tears, and mm-hmm. I, I remember watching that presentation by Chris Milk, who was like one of the pioneers of VR for good, I guess you would say. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that I mean that was a massive catalyst, mm-hmm. a massive moment for us. Thinking mm-hmm. you know that's what that's what we want to do. We want to build experiences that meaningfully impact people that can make change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that is that's an incredible example. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful film, yeah. Uh, I was just what was the inflection point when you sort of switched from scanned mm. to Fovea? Mm-hmm. And firstly, what is Fovea? What, what, what does Fovea mean? Yeah, <laughs> sure. I guess um, as you do as an early, young, naive startup making your way through the world, we, um, you know, we're in this kind of, yeah, bubbling little cauldron of, of potential and these new formats and utilities that we could tap in. So off right off the bat, scan was around 3D scanning space and connecting people with space. And mm-hmm. we saw a few other avenues there like property, but also like digital preservation for heritage and thinking about museums and how you might transport say schools into these different types of, you know, digital twins as we call it or virtual tours. And then the next step for us is like, we had all this data but there weren't really many tools or platforms to manage the data. Mm-hmm. And so we started building a platform called Captured, mm-hmm. which is essentially capturing 3D information and using software to transform it into different things. So we could turn a 3D scan into a floor plan you know, within minutes. And so we could actually automate content um, through using spatial data. Mm-hmm. And then we saw some early signs of off the plan real estate marketing because it's like well how do you perceive something that doesn't exist and so we kind of saw all these different emerging things and um and then lastly to to the story that joe shared when we realized like vr and therapy and this whole aspect of xr for good was was emerging Mm -hmm. um safe to say we had our hands in a few different pots and um we realized like in terms of an identity not really any single one of these really embodied and represented you know, us. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a pretty long and, and, and fun journey, you know, exploring what, what we could evolve into as a brand identity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just like to, to Joseph's point, like I think we all share an affinity with music and lived experiences and um, we're all just at a music event together. And and then at this point in time, our creative director and co-founder, Ryan, you know, came to us mm-hmm. and, and he was just like, Foria. And he just kind of had this epiphany and, I was like, what about Fourier? And we've been seeking the, the name and identity for a long time. And mm-hmm. I guess in one sense, it, it, it's really just, you know, akin to euphoria mm-hmm. and what XR could do in this really almost like a self-actualized medium of, of XR. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to the core of like evolving tech, you know, all those early kind of endeavors that we're exploring were like on the cusp of what was coming and kind of forging into the unknown. So it was like pioneering evolving technology, mm-hmm. but really to the core of what Foray represents is transformative experience. And so whether that's, you know, clouds over Cedra in front of a whole bunch of politicians and economists to then get them to support, you know, human rights policies in Jordan potentially, mm-hmm. or whether it is a patient, you know, in hospital that is maybe, um, 
you know, immune compromised and can't actually do animal therapy. So mm -hmm. you could actually bring the animals into VR and they can have a similar experience more mm -hmm. scalably and safely. And yeah, so we recognize like the, the power is really as an instrument of change. Mm -hmm. And I think more recently where it's, it's emerging is, is the combination of, of spatial technology, so XR and storytelling, and then bringing those together to connect people with space uh, place and, mm -hmm. and culture mm -hmm. and whether that's our present culture or whether it's you know first nations cultures from all around the world mm -hmm. um, it's an exciting yeah space and so Foria is definitely you know we live and breathe Foria now as a team um, all of our team we are Forians individually mm -hmm. you know I think it's amazing the culture that we've shaped um, it's been really refreshing actually I've been this week doing one-on-ones with everyone and just seeing, um, you know, some of the responses to the questions of what you want to do, what impact do you want to have on the world? Mm -hmm. And I think everyone shares the same values, like we recognize that we have both, you know, agency around this kind of vocation that we share, mm -hmm. but also a responsibility to use it, you know, with intention rather than necessarily like fumbling or chasing the money and trying to mm -hmm. pursue the quickest, you know, win. It's actually, I think, the most most meaningful way that we mm -hmm. can work and get shit done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, also, I think one of your earliest projects, I think, which I, which initially connected us was your work in the Peter Mac Cancer Ward, working with children. Mm -hmm. And like that had, uh, had a real, I suppose, impact in that, you know, kids were because of the programs you created, kids were more more easily accepting of injections and mm. and um, and other medications. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, so that was a simulation of the radiotherapy and CT scan process. So it was yeah. rather than sort of injection and medication, I guess it was the real um, the real benefit of that was a deeper understanding and more comfort with what was a really confronting process in young children that have to go through uh, radiotherapy treatments. You know, mm -hmm. Peter Mack's an incredible state-of-the-art facility, but it's not pediatrics focused. Mm -hmm. And so it can be a very sterile, intimidating and confronting environment mm -hmm. for um, young, young humans, young cancer patients. And so we created a simulation of that just using 360 video capture Mm -hmm. which um, from the point of diagnosis, children were able to take home, share with their families, take it to school, share it with their friends. And it just created this incredible social support and improved health literacy outcomes so that when they would come back for their treatment, they would be less worried. They'd be much more comfortable mm -hmm. with it. The parents would be more comfortable with it. They'd know what to do. They'd know when to be still. Um, and you know, the desired flow on was that less children would need anesthesia because there's a high rate of general anesthetic in these um, procedures and mm -hmm. if you get it once you have to get it all 30 treatments which is you know a huge impact to the health of the child a huge cost to the health system the health mm -hmm. economic benefit of not going through the anesthesia process mm -hmm. is huge you can fit more patients in in a day so yeah there's sort of a multiplicity of benefits from it but it was just simply by familiarizing people young children and their families their, their um their friends with this process, lowering that anxiety and helping mm -hmm. them have a more you know, comfortable and present experience. And mm -hmm. there's been a, yeah, the, the white paper on that's been mm -hmm. released. And it's, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite beneficial. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And, and of course now, you know, there's, you also completed an amazing, amazing project with Netflix and 
And you got your wish with Sir Richard Attenborough. David Attenborough. Richard's brother. Richard's brother. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Sorry, I wasn't sure if you had wanted to build on that. Or... No, no, if you can talk about Rewild. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I guess, um, yeah, it's interesting. I remember in the early days, even when we were doing all this VR therapy stuff, um, some of our earlier advisors that were more assigned to us through MAP um, really challenged a lot of the decisions that we were making. They were like, well, what's the monetary gain in that? You know, mm-hmm. like, Where's, where's the paper trail going to take you? And yep. it was never something that I think was front of mind for like, this isn't really why we've started a business in the first place. Mm-hmm. We, we see value in that positive impact that we could have. And that is abundantly worth a lot more, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, over time though, over years of kind of backing ourselves, we've, I think, kind of started to, secure a bit of a recognition and and kind of respect in the kind of global industry that has now actually brought these opportunities back. So there's been a few of these um, worth celebrating. Um, Originally, the VR therapy work that we were doing, we're now doing a free VR um, mental health guided meditation platform at Swinburne University called Mm -hmm. Mental Health Online. Um, And then, yeah, Google and the World Wildlife Fund for Nature reached out the concept around um, a series that Netflix were working on with David Attenborough mm-hmm. called Rewild. Sorry, the project was called Our Planet. Mm-hmm. And one of the themes within Our Planet was to rewild. How do we restore biodiversity loss? And mm-hmm. that was an amazing pitch that we um, put everything into because we could see this really represented foyer and I think the kind of you know magic that we could bring into the world. So pulled together a really interesting concept of a a social AR experience where you get to see um, on a screen, like kind of in an IMAX style setting, the Netflix content, like a mini version, mini episode of sorts. And then through the lens of your phone in AR, Mm -hmm. you can then actually see that kind of break off the screen and come to life around you. So you might be learning about, you know, um, the Sumatran rainforest and the illegal uh, logging trade that's been taking place and the deforestation that's happening and then Alongside that, you'll actually um, work with the group together in AR to then rewild it and restore it around some of the amazing, um, yeah, reforestation initiatives that they've been looking at. And so it was a really fun new space for us, and we created something that was was a mixture of you know AR storytelling. It was extending on top of traditional two D format content, and I think what we really saw the first glimmer of was we call it a location based experience. So a more physical installation that actually brings people together. And I think that's one of the challenges that we've seen with VR is traditionally it is a little bit of a, you know, individual experience, whereas things like AR in a group format, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, guided through a facilitator, there's actually some real immense, I think, opportunities to like present meaningful discussion after that and go, well, what do you think you could do to then restore rainforests around the world or mm-hmm. reduce your carbon footprint? And so we saw, yeah, the impact in the senses alongside VR for AR to really step in as a, mm-hmm. another instrument of change, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think one important part of that as a experiential, you know, as an experience adjacent to and building on the sort of the passive um, nature of say watching a documentary series was that it gave viewers and, and users agency. Mm-hmm. So I love the term percipient because uh, it's it's more like emergent of, you know, you view something, but you 
you see it through the lens of all your life's experience, right? So you're, mm. rather than being a viewer or a user of technology, which is sort of like very passive, as a percipient, you're engaged, there's agency. Mm. Um, and I think that's what Rewild began to create. Is people were, it was a pretty simple mechanic, but they were involved in the solution. And so it gives them buy-in. And then they start to have conversations around, all right, well, practically, what am I doing in my life that affects these topics? What is affected by them? And, yeah, I would hear kids sort of running out of the experience with their families, um, you know, saying, oh, mum, dad, like, why don't we recycle? Or what mm. What are we doing about this? And it's mm. just, you know, it's to see that firsthand of the, the types of conversations that are happening as a result. Mm. You know, that was sold out in Singapore Art Science Museum for months and mm. you know, had a, had a, pretty significant launch in New York and also in Bristol where it was housed within, I mean, it was the equivalent of what was Questacon in Canberra, but essentially like a, you know, science lab mm -hmm. for families, you know, like a, a place of curiosity and exploration. And, and it was definitely like held so well by the people that hosted it there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, definitely had, you could see the impact that mm -hmm. that type of experience could have. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's, it's an incredible, you know, incredible project. So, um, so maybe just a few questions to, to close out now. So firstly, I think we can't go past without talking about the metaverse. So what's, um, what, what's your view of it? Are you optimistic or how, how do you, how do you feel about, I mean, the way it's presented now, just in the, in the everyday conversation that's happening? I think it's tied into much bigger questions about humanity really mm. like it's not it will really depend who wields it yeah. and how centralized it is how democratized it is how accessible it is who makes the rules mm -hmm. who builds the content mm. like if it can truly be a community um and it like the the power for good and the exponential rate that this whole sector will grow at you know, it could have such a profound impact positively on shaping mm -hmm. our future as a species and mm -hmm. connecting us socially when we're apart and providing access to you know profound experiences that help us get to know ourselves and each other better you know mm -hmm. both individually and as a global community but it risks i think the same thing that the rest of the digital world has risked like remember when instagram was photos and it was this beautiful place for community to go and support each other and share work and now every third thing you see is an ad mm -hmm. like not only that it's more um, I suppose the, the perception versus reality mm -hmm. you know it's, it's what yeah, you see is filtered. Filtered. yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. everything's filtered everything's curated and I think I think VR does have real and the metaverse mm -hmm. has real profound potential to help people have deeply authentic experiences more connected experiences mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that there's a very real risk that while the metaverse is wielded by corporations that have to make at least 3% every year more than they did last year and it's built into this giant, you know, infinite growth narrative on a finite planet, we're going to have real issues. Mm -hmm. um, and while we can't have open, honest conversations about that, I think it's going to, it's destined for, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. It's not a positive thing until we can have real conversations about making it not only sustainable, but regenerative. Like mm -hmm. how do we fix, how do we use it to fix the mess we've created, not mm -hmm. just get to a point where it doesn't do more harm. Mm -hmm. 
so many things I wanted to chime in. With. <laughs> um, I'll try and keep it keep it short. I guess mm. like you know, there's a lot of questions like what is the metaverse, and you know, it feels like if you ask the internet right now, it's a place that um, people can get rich quick minting NFTs. Mm. <laughs> yep. um, uh, whereas I think at least at Foria, like. One of the ways that we see the metaverse unfurling is actually on top of and into the world, right? So mm -hmm. I think VR is often perceived as a tool for escape. And hey, if you're a kid in hospital, you know what an amazing tool for you then, mm -hmm. right? Um, whereas I think the metaverse hopefully will kind of start to augment and overlay the world that we share. You know, mm -hmm. I think we'll be using it for daily utility, whether it's for wayfinding, maybe you know, opening up access for people that are visually impaired, like there's just an, an immense and endless list of, I think, mm. benefits that it can provide in this virtual kind of, you know, sphere alongside into the real world. Mm -hmm. um, but I think beyond that, like the metaverse really, it feels like, you know, aligned with the shift of how the way that we work is changing. Mm. It's really just a, a new vessel for us to co-create and to collaborate and to connect with one another. So through the pandemic, um, we actually got the whole team uh, VR headsets mm -hmm. and started coordinating a few um, team meetings where everyone's in VR. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, it was a little bit of a stumbling blocks in the the first few sessions because it's you know almost like the first Zoom call. You're like, what's the etiquette and protocol? And how do I unmute myself? And <laughs> it was bounce. it was a very, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it. But we could do things like. Um, go to the virtual Burning Man, you know, oh, like we, we had a little yeah. field trip where everyone was, was out, you know, um, and we were doing team team meetings where everyone makes an avatar and mm. we, we did a little session where we realized, you know, everyone was kind of missing the aspect of being able to travel. Mm -hmm. And so how could we virtually, you know, go on a trip together or maybe as a company support, you know, people's travel when we can roam free again. And so I think there was some really nice elements that I think collectively that we sort of noticed um, benefit in and then even yesterday I had a team call with um, yeah one of our, our team and, and he was in VR he was in an app called Workrooms and mm. I was actually just on my laptop and I could see his avatar and I was just emotionally I found it really interesting like kind of connecting with his avatar mm -hmm. of him and how expressive it was and how happy he looked and I knew that wasn't necessarily like what expression he was representing at that point in time mm -hmm. But there was something really unique there. Um, I know like Bill Gates is talking about, he reckons, um, yeah, the future of work will move entirely to the metaverse in the next two to three years. Mm -hmm. um, definitely not entirely. There's nothing that beats that human connection. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we managed at least through Fourier in the last you know, couple of years is we've actually managed to maintain a, a really incredible workplace culture. You know, mm -hmm. we've obviously missed getting around, you know, watching maybe, you know, a movie at the end or having like a little team called the monthly immersives where we all kind of come together and share stories about hobbies and different things that pop up. And mm -hmm. it is hard to keep that fire, you know, lit through this kind of Zoom mm -hmm. age. Yep. But then, you know, at the end um, of the year last year when we all came together for our Christmas party, it was amazing to see you know how connected i think we all were and i think it's all these instruments at our disposal that we use and i think that collectively to me at least represents some sense of the metaverse and what it actually mm. can provide um so yeah hopefully yeah we can actually help you know shape it and what it can become rather than necessarily checking people's eyeballs to mm. sell more things you know that's the thing it's something that reminds me of something that jaron lanier 
said is that the best thing about virtual reality is that it's this comparison point to show you how great actual reality is. <laughs> mm. So glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. Mm. I mean, it's hard to see it any other way for me than like a means to an end in a way. Mm. Like our mutual friend Anna McCracken always said that she was trying to put it, she was working in you know, consulting for NDIA and NDIS and she was like, I'd love to put myself out of a job. Like everyone mm. in social work wants to be out of a job because you want the solution mm-hmm. to the problem to come not to have to be there. And mm. I feel like for me, VR and technology in general is is that. It's like, can mm. we use it? Like it's, I feel like the greatest potential for VR for us as a species is to use it to get to a point where we no longer need technology. Mm-hmm. To get to a point where we can, you know, where technology sort of isn't the focus and we can, you know, sort of go back to focusing on being communities and mm-hmm. use it to get us back in touch with what it is to sort of live as custodians on the planet and mm-hmm. live in a more harmonious, supportive and creative way rather than, yeah, I've, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it being a tool for work because mm-hmm. it's just then when do you take it off? Like yep. you, you already mm-hmm. saw this from everyone would go to work from home and then it's like, oh, well, I don't have to leave the office so I might as well work till 9 or 10 or 12 or whenever. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I was guilty of that because I was working on a deadline through our first lockdown. So it's just like, well, why stop working? Mm. I guess, uh, yeah, there is a there, there's a concern, I think, that VR will be that. It's like, why take it off if yep. work and play and everything is in there? Mm. And I think that's, so there was a student thread by this guy called, who's an entrepreneur called Sean Puri, where he talks about the metaverse. And he said that the metaverse could be seen as this expression of time. And let's say traditionally we're 100% in the physical, spend our time 100% in the physical mm-hmm. realm. And then maybe literature and books took maybe 5% of that. Then TV came along and then maybe we're 80%. Mm-hmm. Then phones and social media got us to 50%. Mm-hmm. And then soon, you know, technology being the way it is, someone like, someone's going to invent classes that would kind of move the dial more and more towards... Mm-hmm towards kind of zero percent and and that's a scary it's a scary yeah. Yeah. i've been thinking um i was listening to a podcast and it was talking about the emergence of slow media right mm-hmm. and um it was saying like it was comparing the first james bond trailer to the most recent one the first one was three minutes and maybe it had like 12 scenes in there and the most recent one's 30 seconds probably like 50 shots right like it's just <laughs> saying we're forever dialing up the stimulus and yes, creating yeah. more accessible mm-hmm. means to like you know, jack in. Um, but then you look at VR and, 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 you know, as a filmmaker, just can speak to this, but you can't have that same intensity, you know, in terms of the content because, yeah, it is much closer to actually how you kind of live and mm. experience something at a more natural level. And so even intrinsically, VR films are actually a slower media. Mm-hmm. And hopefully in a way like we can really leverage that it is a paradigm shift and we recognize, you know, the addictive habits that we formed through the, you know, our smart devices and actually create, you know, a bit of a new canvas to try and lean into these edges and kind of acknowledge them and reconstruct them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously like, you know, concepts like Black Mirror as a series mm-hmm. have definitely mm-hmm. come up a lot in this XR space, but we really want to try and look at what is the right way of, of actually like, you know, redesigning something because it is such a huge departure from what is the status quo today mm-hmm. so let's hope that we actually you know do take it you know with consideration mm-hmm. rather than just blindly you know stumbling through mm-hmm. i think tyson yanka porter who's an incredible author and academic and thinker um 
author of Sand Talk, which I highly recommend for anyone. But in his podcast, he speaks about he has this sort of he doesn't feel like the digital age will persist because it's simply it's like based on finite resources, right? Mm-hmm. Like how many spinning disk drives can we create? It's based on Moore's law. Yeah. yeah. Like mm-hmm. we're going to hit a point where like we can't power all the hard drives that we need to keep mm-hmm. the metaverse alive or we can't create another server farm. Like where does it go? Mm-hmm. You know, it the cloud is like this ethereal thing that we're all happy to engage with and all of our photos are there and our banking is there and everything. But it's like it is they're spinning little magnetic things. Mm-hmm. In, a in someone's basement. It has to be kept at <laughs> yeah. 20 degrees or lower, you know. like yeah. It is, it's all... I think that the risk is that it is, we disconnect from the fact that even the servers that host the metaverse exist in this literal, physical, mm. finite mm. world, right? And I think that we just need to be cautious of that and connected to that. And I think it has immense potential to be really productive and really positive, you know, and, and, a, and an inflection point for our understanding and comprehension of what it is to be human and to mm. return to a lot of you know, meaningful aspects of humanity. But it, yeah, I think we can't approach it like it's infinite because yep. it's, it's still yeah. bound by the laws of the planet that we exist on. We only get one. Sure. Um, so just to maybe close out the conversation, um, coming back to Fourier, now you have 30 staff, is that right? Yeah, about 34. 34, yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so being, I suppose, the leaders of this organization now, how, how do you, and being this is, you know, the All Meaningful Work, podcast how do you ensure that those 34 people are kind of engaged in the work that they do and find meaning in the work that they do that's awesome yeah it's an awesome awesome question and something Mm. joseph and i've been exploring as well like yeah i think the first step that's really shifted is best part of this pandemic is it's completely deconstructed a system that we took as dogma right like Mm. this this is how you have to be productive i'll never forget pre-covid we were questioning you know who we give, um, who we trust enough to work remotely, right? Mm-hmm. Who do we trust to give one day of their week that they can work from home, you know? And we're a young company and we even had, you know, questions and doubts at that point in time because mm-hmm. this is against the norm. And I, I love that that's just been completely destroyed uh, instantly, <laughs> literally overnight. And we kind of bring up whether, you know, capitalism, like can we shift paradigms or whether or not it needs to kind of dismantle and collapse again. Mm. Maybe for the next podcast, that, that's a topic for another time. But I think, um, yeah, where we're at the moment is really, I think, a, a lot of really open bi-directional feedback with our staff. Um, without pestering them too much, we really try and, you know, gauge where they're at, what they really want to strike as their future balance um, right now. Yeah, 95% of our staff are still working remotely. Generally, a lot of people, you know, really love that, the balance that they can get from that. Obviously, there's a lot of um, us, I think, individually that are missing more of that connection, Mm -hmm. you know, bumping to each other, having, you know, a little slap of table tennis downstairs and things like that. Um, And then right now, I'm actually just doing one-on-ones with every single foreign and just checking in and setting really goals and intentions for the year, but also trying to gather some feedback around what we could be doing better as a company and, you know, how do we move forward collectively into this, you know, future of work. Um, and without a doubt, you know, like we, we do some amazing stuff, but there's also a lot of really, you know, base level work that still needs to get done. And how do you help, you know, your team find meaning in something that maybe could be, you know, relatively monotonous work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, yeah, finding a sense of like agency or trying to help 
shape really a career pathway that they can kind of move and progress rather than feeling like they're stuck, mm. you know, in any particular role at any point in time. Um, and that just comes from a conversation and mm. really asking questions that I feel like often employers don't ask their employees, like, you know, where are you at? What kind of salary do you want to be making in five years? You know, if mm -hmm. you could shift into another career, what would that be? Mm -hmm. um, and trying to bring in more than just like your professional work, you know, not how mm -hmm. you can be more efficient as, you know, <laughs> a worker bee, but actually like what are some of those well-being elements that we can look at in terms yeah. of redesigning the way that you work and you know we're actually trying to do it as founders you know mm -hmm. what is we've been working for this company for close to a decade how do we help this company you know work for us mm -hmm. and i also mm -hmm. really believe that we need to be in the service of our employees mm -hmm. rather than feeling like you know we have some sense of ownership over them we really want to do good by them to the best of our ability and we mm -hmm. want to make sure that you know, we have a positive impact on the world and the first way to do that is have a positive impact on the team that we've built and the community that we're growing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a fun fun space. Um, I feel like we're on the right path, but I know we've got a lot of work ahead of us as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I guess. Oh, I mean, I can't talk about interacting with the team and managing a team any better than Trent just has. I think that's like really it. It's like having making sure that there's always contact points for conversations or having, mm -hmm. you know, personal conversations with everyone where they feel you know safe enough to have difficult conversations and mm -hmm. really it's about like drilling down to like what what is their purpose like mm -hmm. what are they you know what do they feel good doing what are their creative expressions what are their outlets and how can we foster an environment and let the company grow in a way that will support that and I think that's actually a really interesting aspect of it is not being attached to like having objectives as, as a company, but obviously like allowing a really organic evolution that the company, the company's future will be shaped by the collective agency and autonomy of everyone within it, right? Mm -hmm. like it, and we saw that as we grew, as we got this space in Fitzroy moving out of like a co-working sort of space into our own defined, you know, uh, like venue, spaceship. I guess. Like, yeah, yeah there's a Florida spaceship, like <laughs> that allowed everyone within our team room to define the company based on what they could bring to it and we saw mm -hmm. that we saw the company evolve the culture shift and change and it was this collective sort of coming together of everyone's purpose and everyone's mm -hmm. personality and i think that's like you know something to keep in mind moving forward that always stuck with me i can't remember where i heard of it was like rather than creating Rather than hiring people because they fit with your culture, create a company culture where people don't have to fit, where they can be themselves and be mm -hmm. a true expression mm -hmm. of whatever their purpose is. And I guess for Trent was talking about the sort of like, how do we lead by example? One thing that I'm really trying to do, because it's just felt so right for me, is like during the lockdowns, I was really lucky to um, be able to move from, you know, living alone in an apartment in Brunswick, which, is, which was my reality for most of the however many lockdowns Melbourne endured mm. uh, and trade that for living with a good friend of mine in Anglesey and working remotely from there. And, you know, my 5K radius then was like, you know, dictated by the weather and the tide and mm -hmm. you know, what cycle the moon was in. And I think that there's something in that. There's something in being able to shape your working week around your natural environment mm -hmm. and allowing space to tune into that natural world as well and i love that i feel like i'm so much happier when i you know i go for a run at lunch when the tide's low so that i can get around the rocks or mm -hmm. 
the surf's good and I can do this tomorrow, so I will. Mm. You know, like there is such a rebalancing that priority so that you can be in touch with the natural environment mm. is rejuvenating on a on a level that is both like personally really you know energizing and gratifying and stimulates that creativity and, and inspiration um and it's it's calming it's peaceful it's mindfulness it's like it's all the things that i think help you be happier as a person and also produce better work mm. from a place of you know more stillness and more groundedness and more you know you're more inspired and more creative so i think for me it's really like how do i create a balance where work never feels like work no matter how challenging mm. it is because you have these outlets and these you know points to connect back to you know just the the natural world around you mm-hmm. that that's incredible because mm. I, i think and i suppose that's what we've missed since the industrial revolution mm. is that right. this connection to uh the natural flow of systems and mm. uh, the way the world mm. have you read so, your mind on plants Sorry to interrupt. No, no. The new Michael Pollan book. Yeah. He talks mm. about, and mm. he says this in a few podcasts that he's done as well, like he talks about the way that the um, discovery of caffeine, like caffeinated beverages, tea, coffee, everything, like mm. that sort of sparked the industrial revolution in his eyes because it was the ability finally to break the workday outside of daylight hours, right? Because mm-hmm. we were bound by our circadian rhythm and we didn't have the energy to work outside of hours, mm-hmm. outside of daylight hours. So coffee and caffeine in general was like this stimulant which allowed us to break out of that and was a huge seed that fueled the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And it's like now we can work anywhere at any time, 24 hours a day. And it's like the, the real discipline, the real magic is in learning to create space from that so that mm-hmm. you can approach it like with real energy and authenticity and creativity. If yeah. I could just quickly build on that, like one conversation that we have uh, been having more frequently is I guess through the, you know, industrialized development of our economies, um, obviously the more negative impact that we've been having on the ecosystems in which these industries are thriving. And so we were talking about, um, you know, how much more connected we would be if we could go for a swim in the Yarrow River or mm-hmm. along Merry Creek, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a time, you know, where basically all the factory runoff was poisoning the waterways. Mm-hmm. And then we, we severed this relationship that we would have had with the landscape where we could literally care for it and tend to it and have some sense of custodial responsibility, right, to look after it. And so I wonder at the same time, whilst we became more efficient and productive and regimented in the way that we work, we're also deteriorating that natural relationship that Joseph was just speaking to that he's managed to rekindle, you know, working along the coast in Anglesey. Mm. And so I wonder now as we become more ethical and hopefully more sustainable in the way that we operate, more distributed in the places that we can work, really that connection with the natural world is something that I feel is like instrumental to what brings us just balance and equanimity and mm-hmm. happiness in the way that we work. Yep. Um, so many of the team just yesterday were saying, you know, I'd love to just chime in and jump on a call from the beach or just be mm-hmm. somewhere else that isn't this little shoebox in the city that I'm paying all this rent for. Yeah, yeah. And so it's exciting to think about that and not just changing the way that we work, but the way that we actually look after the planet, I think mm-hmm. is something that's uh, hopefully the next chapter once we, bounce back from this mm. crazy pandemic yeah <laughs> all right um thank thank you guys so much for for doing this uh this is this is the, the last question and uh i suppose personally just for you like what does the term on meaningful work mean for you mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I can I can start there. I guess like initially, um, it kind of connects me with the thought of ikigai, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, your reason for being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never forget, uh, you know, whilst I was studying at university, just one one saying that really resonated with me, which was love what you do and do what you love. Mm-hmm. And I will be the first to admit, I'm naturally at the best times a bit of a workaholic. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, it doesn't really feel like I'm working. Mm-hmm. I, I really love what I do. Um, I feel incredibly blessed to have an opportunity with the gifts that have been afforded to me in life and I want to make the most of it. And I love connecting with people and really channeling that through my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't really feel like there's a separation where I'm like, oh, i got to go to work today. Mm-hmm. It's like I get to have really exciting conversations with amazing humans such as you. Mm-hmm. And that's technically my job. Um, and so I think in terms of, you know, unmeaningful work, it's deriving meaning than it just being work. And I need mm. to then clock off and switch off and then soak up and recharge from all these other things because I've, you know, had all the energy sapped away through this, you know, monotonous thing. It's the opposite mm. of that. And so I feel very nourished by my work. And so mm. I, I really believe that sense of ikigai in terms of my craft and vocation is, is definitely where I find meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, that's awesome. I think for me, unmeaningful work means work that doesn't separate you from your sense of self, I guess, mm. and ideally work that deepens that understanding. And so, you know, there's this huge paradigm of people who maybe have to be one version of themselves at work, mm-hmm. and that isn't their true self, and then they'll be completely different on the weekend at home with their mm. friends, with their partner, whatever that might be. And I think that that meaningful work is, is work where you can bring your full self and and feel comfortable being your full self and i think that that really work that helps you you know understand your creative potential and understand who you are and your place in the world and connect more deeply in that way you know work should be community because mm-hmm. that, that is an inherent part of community right so i think meaningful work is done in community it's done mm-hmm. in a way that you know deepens your understanding of you know, your place in the world and what you might have to contribute and ideally gives you a space to grow and flourish and understand those aspects of what you might want to contribute to the planet. It's like, I know it's very Burning Man-esque and Burning Man's been hijacked in its own ways, but it's like, what's your gift? Mm-hmm. What's the thing that you want to give to the world? What's the thing that you want to bring? And what's a, mm-hmm. you know, a safe space, but also a space that challenges you and makes you feel alive and think mm-hmm. about, you know, what are those outer limits like to bring a full circle back to like where we started? It's like, What's the limit mm-hmm. of it? Like, where? How mm-hmm. far can you take something in in a creative way, not a destructive way? But like, how big can it grow? Mm-hmm. That's awesome, mm-hmm. man. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, gents. Um, firstly, I'm really glad we could do this in person. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah. So nice to see you. It's a beautiful face and beard of yeah. yours. Yeah. <laughs> Always nice to see you. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, man, and really congratulations on what you've achieved so far with with Fourier. It's really, it's really something. Yeah. And I'm kind of humbled to be kind of witness to this journey, you know, for mm. for a few years now, and it's really spectacular to see what you've accomplished. So. Well, your support and the conversations we've had along the way mm. helped shape it, my friends. So, yeah. yeah, you're part of it for sure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we appreciate it. Cool. Thank Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. 
or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. That's R-A-H-U-L at disruptivebusinessnetwork, all one word, dot com. Finally, a big shout out to our producer, Dan Scahill, for his work on the keys and to Vashti Civil for writing the original music for our theme. Until next time, this is your host, Rahul Sohn, signing off. Bye.